This is John Anderson Direct with Coleman Hughes. Please note that John Anderson Direct is recorded live via online streaming, which means that sometimes the audio quality is less than optimum. Coleman Hughes, it's incredibly good of you to join us on a very sensitive but incredibly important uh, topic, Black Lives Matters. Uh, you've recently, uh, well, you, you're a jazz musician, a well-established public intellectual in America. You've written for the New York Times, itself a very interesting uh, entity these days. You've written for the Wall Street Journal, for Quillette. Uh, you host your own podcasts. And I'd have to say, you're very brave and you're committed to data and rational argument. So uh, thank you again for your time. We hear this term systemic racism bandied around a great deal now. What I'd like to do, though, is to take a helicopter view of, if you like, the whole issue of racism as a horrific uh, blight, really, on human nature, and then look at the way in which it's played out. The reality is that the cruelty and the dreadful uh, thing called slavery has been a constant battle throughout human history. And when you stop and think of just how ugly the African slave trade was, you can see the origins of some of the terrible tensions in America. That was systemic racism. That was the idea that one man could buy and sell another man or women and children as though they were goods and chattels. Gradually, in, particularly in America, uh, in, 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 uh, in Britain, uh, with very courageous leadership from people like Wilberforce and so forth, that was wound back. Um, the trade itself was abolished and then slavery uh, in the, uh, from 1807 through to 1833. Then in America, you had a terrible civil war fought over it. Nonetheless, systemic racism might have been ended in the sense that slavery was stopped. But what happened in Southern America was appalling right up until the civil rights movement of the 1960s. To what extent is systemic racism a realistic term that means anything today? So, yes, yeah, systemic racism is a term that is very confusing. Um, and I'm, I'm not sure it's necessary. Um, it's a term that comes, that didn't exist before 1967 when the book Black Power was written by Stokely Carmichael and Charles Hamilton. And they came up with this distinction between institutional racism, as they called it then, and individual racism. Individual racism is, uh, it pertains to some, something, some stuff you just alluded to, uh, you know, a member of the Ku Klux Klan you know, lynching a black person, as happened frequently in the South around the turn of the century. That's, that's what they called individual racism. But they wanted to carve out a, a kind of racism that was more subtle, that was less violent, that pertained to things like a real estate agent steering a prospective homeowner into a black neighborhood rather than a white neighborhood, or a, a banker who would only lend to whites rather than blacks. That's what they meant in 1967 when they uh, coined the term institutional racism. So on that definition, institutional racism 
still exists and um it should absolutely be opposed in the strongest possible terms with anti-discrimination law and just cultural norms at the same time i think there's less of it now than there ever has been in american history um so you know and, and the 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 other part of this is that the word that phrase gets used in different ways so a lot of times what people mean by systemic racism nowadays is not what what they meant 50 years ago which is just a kind of subtle racial bias that is you know less than violent but still important a lot of what people mean by it now is any any kind of departure from statistical equality in terms of income wealth incarceration uh and so forth so anything you know if if in in america black people are 14% of the population but less than 14% of some desirable sector of society uh that people call that gap systemic racism uh that's a very naive notion because it doesn't take into account all of the many ways in which uh different groups of people are different like have different levels of have different levels of education uh live in different parts of the country different cultures and you know to expect this kind of perfectly equal world measured by group averages i think is is naive and dangerous but that's part of what people mean by systemic racism today so if i understand you correctly i think we're on the same page here the the systemic racism might be useful if you were to say pose the question are the laws of the land in themselves racially discriminatory uh, as they were plainly when slavery was allowed for when it was impossible for people in the south to vote fairly in elections uh, as recently as the 1960s as i understand it it could be very difficult to get a license to vote um so there's that sort of institutionalized racism uh and then there's the it it has its origins of course in the attitudes of the heart if i can put it that way the way people regard one another i've always been astounded at our capacity for hatred uh and not always between racial groups of course just the ability of one human being to be dehumanize another human being is an astonishing and a terrible thing it it comes though from the heart i would have thought rather than from the law of the land so on the if you like the legal side of it it seems that tremendous progress has been made nobody would deny that racism in terms of people's attitudes still exists and it will exist while ever human beings uh fail if you like uh, to to be sincerely thoughtful and, uh, and and reasonable towards other human beings yeah i like that distinction you make it's very helpful um so le- legalized racism ended in roughly 1967 you, we we could quibble about the date but you know within a decade of of the late 60s uh you know legally sanctioned racism that is racist laws ceased to exist and what we're left with is what systemic racism originally meant when when the coin was when the, the the term was coined which is really more accurately put as as you sort of said racism of the heart or of the mind or of the even barely conscious variety that 
many people have to varying degrees, not just white people, of course, black people too. Um, and that's a harder target to actually reform because you can't legislate, you know, if a cop is, is, has a racial bias against black people and is more likely to be suspicious of a black person than a white person in a similar circumstance, that's a much harder thing to regulate away than a, a um, outright racist law preventing black people from voting. So we had a massive change in this country in the late 60s, which is that the, the fight, the fight which was previously thought to be unwinnable, was won. Black people you know, had equal rights under the law, could vote, uh, and so on and so forth, had the right to housing, but we're, we were still left with, um, you know, the reality of racial bias. And as, as you said, I'm, you know, racial bias is just one species of human cruelty. Uh, it's always worth rem remembering that the, the, the racial slavery system in America grew out of an, a system of indentured servitude that was colorblind, but that disproportionately uh, impacted white Europeans at first. In the 17th century, there was very little slavery of Africans in America. It was, there was a lot of indentured servitude of, of other Europeans. And, um, it was, you know, it obviously didn't last, it was not a life sentence, but it was equally cruel and a system of racial slavery evolved gradually out, out of that. Um, so yes, um, that cruelty has has ended and as well as legalized racism but we are left with this more subtle kind of racial bias and there's two attitudes you can take to it at least two one is to look forward to a world in which there is literally no racial bias whatsoever and to try to get to that world at you know at, at at any cost no matter how draconian you have to be politically or to understand that there are trade-offs involved that just like we'll never get to a society with zero murder we'll never get to to a society with zero racial bias because we are built flawed uh, and just like, you know, what it would take to get the murder rate to absolute zero would be a kind of dystopian police state nightmare that wouldn't be worth the trade-off. The effort to get to a society completely devoid of the last vestiges of mental racism may also involve trade-offs that are not worth it. So there has to be a conversation between different factions of society that are, you know, seeking to, on the one hand, to reduce, to reduce racial bias and seeking on the other hand, not to infringe on people's personal liberties, not to, um, sick, you know, not to start witch hunts of people, not to get people fired for false instances of racism, not to define racism so widely so that um, you know, any opinion that you don't like falls in that category. So there has to be that back and forth. You just said something that I think is incredibly important. 
uh, you use the term we're built flawed. That's an acknowledgement uh, that that each of us needs to take on board. We are all capable of doing the wrong thing. We're all capable of behaving nobly. And if you go back to the anti-slavery movement just for a moment, uh, think of a man like uh, John Newton, who wrote the still most sung hymn today, I gather, Amazing Grace. He was a dreadful piece of work, engaged in the brutality of the slave trade. He himself, in his own diaries, recorded about just how appallingly he behaved. Now, he had a dramatic conversion experience and became a, an incredible anti-slavery campaigner. He switched as a flawed human being from the darker angels of his own nature to the better and became a great campaigner for good. It's worth remembering that he points out that he then became worried about the fact that it was some African tribes themselves who were trading in slaves that were finding them, bringing them to the coast and on selling them. What is my point? My point is that all of us can do the wrong thing. All of us can undergo a change of heart and do the right thing. And I've always been struck by Martin Luther King, who seemed to want to say the colour of this shouldn't matter. It's the content of character. But now we seem to be turning it around and saying, the colour of skin really does matter. Yeah, so two things there. I, I, I couldn't agree more. I think um, the, the more you learn about human history and especially world history, the more you are absolutely unsurprised when any group of people is incredibly cruel to another. Skin colour has nothing to do with it. As you, as you correctly noted, the, the vast majority of African slaves sent to America were not made slaves by Europeans. They were made slaves by other Africans and sold for goods by those Africans who profited and sold to the new world. Um, there was a massive you know, slave trade perpetrated by Arabs, um, which involved millions of Africans. It also involved enslaving Europeans. Um, you know, China's had slavery since ancient times. Um, I think it's it's easy to be uh, provincial, having been born in a modern era, about how commonplace cruelty has been throughout the world, um, throughout history. And therefore, it's easy to make the mistake of thinking that somehow white Europeans have been uniquely cruel. Um, very few people know that you know, the largest contiguous land empire in history was the Mongols, right? Um, they had almost as much, you know, the, the only the only larger empire was the British, and all of all of this, the conquest, whether it was the Aztecs or African nations or the Mongols or the British, they were all cruel, and we can quibble about which ones were crueler, crueler, but I think that's missing the point. The, the, the fundamental principle that is important is that, as you noted, we are all capable of enormous cruelty and we have to have some kind of universal moral, moral principles that discourage cruelty regardless of whether that cruelty is directed at people of one skin, skin color or another regardless of whether it's justified in the name of um, of making up for history, of compensating for history, we have to have 
a principle that recognizes the human being as a fundamental and valuable unit in him or herself that is not that, that does not take into account their skin color the one of the things that dismays me is that we now know there are more slaves on earth today than there have ever been in the past as a percentage of global population it's probably much lower than in the worst days of uh, the African slave trade and indeed the Middle Eastern slave trade and Chinese, but it's an estimated 45 to 50 million slaves today and I find almost no community activity and uprising about that. There's some, but nowhere near enough. Uh, so nothing's changed. We are still capable of treating one another just as inhumanely as ever. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um... I don't really know what what can be done. I, I think uh, in in some African countries, like Mauritania, I've heard they have a a problem with slavery. I'm not sure what can be done by us about that. What the UN can be doing about it, but that's definitely a conversation. You know, it, there is something a little bit grotesque about the level of interest people have in slavery that happened hundreds of years ago without sort of acknowledging mm -hmm. the slavery that exists today. There is something I always find it little bizarre about that. And, 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 and the other thing that's concerning is that it's, it seems as though it can be fashionable to tackle a problem in some area and to blow it out of all proportions while you ignore a much more serious problem where there is systemic evil, to use, that, to use a term, um, somewhere else. It's as though some people matter and some people matter less and can even be airbrushed out of public consciousness. We need, I think, to be able to walk and chew gum at the same time. But to come back to um, the, the next thing I wanted to ask you about, it does seem to me, and uh, I'm not for a moment denying the problem, I think it really matters, and I'm not trying to trivialise it or airbrush out the challenges that people might face in yours or my society, Certainly in Aboriginal communities in Australia, there are many challenges. I just think we misdiagnose them and we often remove agency. That's the worst and most patronising thing you can do of all in, in my country. But as I understand it, African-Americans on the sort of socio and economic scales have been doing better since the 60s. About the time Martin Luther King was active, perhaps a third of American, um, African-Americans were middle class on middle class incomes. It's probably closer to 60% now. So there's a trend line there, as I understand it, correct me if I'm wrong, that is not all bad. No, you, I would go even further. Um, it's hard to find a trend line that starts in 1960 and ends in 2020 that isn't good. Um, basically all the trend lines are good with regard to wealth, health, income, even the, you know, well, I'll, 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 I'll just say that for now, but the, the problem is that people don't look at it that way. Um, in the media, especially <clears throat> what people do rather than compare black Americans today to black Americans 50 years ago is compare black Americans today to white Americans today. And so they don't see any progress. Um, you know, a, a common statistic, for example, is that a hundred years ago, black people had one tenth the wealth of white people on, on average. And that's still true today. 
Uh, so in their minds, they'll say, well, actually, no progress has happened because black people still have one tenth the wealth that white people have. Of course, the math there can be read any number of ways. It, it, black people are enormously much, much, much wealthier uh, than we were 50 or 100 years ago. Um, so it, it all matters what, it, what your benchmark is. You know, if you compare white Americans to Asian Americans, you actually find white Americans on the losing end of that income disparity um, and that incarceration disparity and virtually any disparity. So the benchmark you choose ends up determining the attitude you have towards whether progress has been made. Now, I'm, I personally think that the benchmark you choose matters, that there's a, there's a proper benchmark to choose and an improper benchmark to choose. Um, ultimately, what we care about is what what we want to see is every generation doing better better than the last one. Um, I think that is a, a realistic goal, and it's a goal that doesn't require this unhealthy comparing between groups that have completely different histories and ought not be compared to each other. In my opinion, you know, why always compare black outcomes to white outcomes if white people had several hundred years of head start? Like if you're running a relay race and you inherit a 10-yard um, disadvantage from the last runner, it's not a failure if you don't recoup the 10 yards necessarily. It's what, what you want is to make progress, right? That's how I view things. Now, that's somewhat controversial position in the American commentariat, but I think it makes sense. Well, that's, that's a very valuable insight, I think. Um, can we come then to... You're very strong on data and facts, uh, which seem to matter less in the age of identity politics, I might add, than emotions and feelings and tribalism. But what are the real numbers uh, in terms of police killings in America and the, uh, if you like, the racial background of those who are who are shot or, you know, killed? As I understand it, they're quite revealing. And in fact, in a nation of what 330, 340 million. Uh, with the reputation America, if I can be frank, has now for 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 violence, the numbers of people, men and who mainly men anyway, who are shot, surprisingly low. But can you give us a bit of a feel as to just how racially they 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 break down? Sure. Um, so roughly, you know, this is I'm summarizing from the past five years of data. Roughly a thousand Americans are killed every year by uh, a police firing a weapon. Of those thousand, usually 95% are armed at the time that they're killed. And the policeman or woman made a decision to pull the trigger on an armed suspect who was viewed as dangerous on, on account of being armed. Now, not all of those were justified, perhaps, um, but it's, it's generally safe to assume that most of those are cases where a, a a cop is doing his or her job correctly by, you know, um, uh, eliminating a genuine threat to other people. So that leaves a, about 50 unarmed Americans killed every year in a country of 330 million that, you know, has something on the order of 10 million arrests um, every year. <clears throat> 50 end up with a person who is unarmed getting killed. 
Now, of those 50, uh, the majority are white, um, or at minimum, the largest group are white. Usually about 40 to 50% of, of that subset are white and almost all men. Usually anywhere from 25 to 35% of that of unarmed Americans shot by the cops are black. And, the, and then the rest are uh, Hispanic, largely, and very few are Asian. So if you look at that disparity at face value, it can seem like there's racism there because black people make up 14% of the population total, but about 35% of um, unarmed Americans that get shot by cops. So you can say, why isn't it 14%? Doesn't that indicate that there is a racial bias? The problem with that is you have to adjust for other variables. The, the cops aren't um, randomly, you know, knocking on people's doors and encountering different citizens of different races equally. The cops are responding, largely they're responding to 911 calls. And the cops get more 911 calls from black neighborhoods because of the underlying facts of racially disparate crime, which is to say um, black people are about seven times more likely to commit and suffer homicide, uh, for which we have the most reliable data, which means that if you're getting, a, if you're getting seven times as many homicide calls from the black community as you would expect based on population alone, you just have more opportunities for things to go wrong to begin with. So once you control for that variable, once you control for all of these important variables, all of the studies, or the, the, the vast majority of the most rigorous studies, especially the one done by Harvard economist Roland Fryer, who admitted that the results surprised him, is that there is not an, an anti-black bias in a cop's likelihood of pulling the trigger. But the other thing the studies tend to find is cops are quicker to put their hands on or rough up a black or Hispanic suspect. We don't, I, I don't think that the, we have a clear picture of why that is. It could be due to racial bias. Um, and no doubt, I think there, there are racist cops and there are, um, there's a wider set of just, you know, whether or not they're racist cops, they're bad cops. Um, and there's a huge problem with the police being held accountable when they abuse people. So I'm not minimizing any of that. I'm just to the specific question of whether there is an epidemic of cops killing unarmed black people. It's not true. Seems to me that you, you made a very interesting point there, uh, that the 911 calls, uh, different numbers in our country, but the emergency calls um, often originate from uh, black people looking for protection. They have every interest in, I would have thought, building a better, more effective, uh, more wisely trained and educated, if you like, police force rather than deconstructing a police force, which is obviously the objective of a lot of white elites who are arguing, it seems in your country, for depolicing. Seems to me to be the worst possible solution and shows a real lack of understanding or perhaps even interest in the facts. 
I agree with everything you just said, except that it's not just the white elites. It's also um, activists, uh, black activists, white activists, activists of every color are calling for <clears throat> who, who are in their own way a kind of elite. Um, your, your point is well taken in that it's not the typical person, black, white or other, who is who, who wants to defund the police. Um, and polls show that, you know, the majority of black black Americans do not think that's a good idea. Um, and as you also say, you know, often improving a given institution can require funding it more sometimes, you know, we, we often, you know, when we talk about public schools failing in this country, no one suggests that this, a few people suggest that the solution is just to defund the public schools as if taking away money from an institution will magically translate into them being more proficient at their jobs. Um, often it's the case that police officers in America are undertrained. Often it's the case that they're overworked. Um, both of those solutions, but both of those problems potentially call for more funding, not less. So again, don't I don't ever mean to minimize the the abuses which exist and the fundamental accountability problem. That is to say, in America, if you're a cop, it is extremely hard to get punished for anything you do. Short of shooting someone while they're lying face down in the back. Short of that, it is extremely difficult to face consequences for anything. And that goes whether the victim of the cop is white, black, purple, or whatever. So that's a problem. And we have to find a way to fix that without going too far and um, making it impossible for cops to do their job. That is a genuinely tough problem. Anyone who says there's a simple answer is selling you snake oil, period. It's just a tough, tough thing. I can, I can really accept what you're saying there, but I think that my biggest takeout would be the worst way to approach this problem is to simply ruthlessly attack the police as an unwanted evil that's simply we're all human they'll just turn inward on themselves and become defensive you've got to start with an attitude that says we need policing it's an honorable profession how do we fix the problems rather than we want to get rid of you because you're all a pack of you know stalinists uh, no it's true i mean it you know i've attended many of the protests in New York and, and Washington, D.C., and the, the rhetoric is, uh, I, I don't, can I curse on your show? <laughs> yeah. Go ahead. I'm just, so just to faithfully describe the rhetoric, um, NYPD suck my dick is one of the main chants. Um, and people would get in the police's face and, and flip them off and almost, you can, you can feel them almost hoping for a fight, some of them. Yeah. Um, most of the protesters don't do this. Most of the protesters discourage it. But there's a minority within them who love provoking the cops, getting up close to their face, almost spitting in their face and, you know, using profanity like that. What Basically, whether or not the a lot of these cops, by the way, are black and Hispanic in New York, like half the cops in the city are black and Hispanic. So, um, yes, I think tough for them. Yes, it's a it's a strange situation to be in to be to be a black police officer that is, you know is hearing you know 
it's the one situation where a, a white person it's acceptable on the American left for a white person to say something horrible to a black person is if the black person happens to be a cop. It's the only time um, they'll allow that kind of thing or perhaps like a black conservative. Um, but uh, if we want, like we, we, we need police to be an attractive profession yeah. because one of the big problems and Ray Kelly, the former NYPD commissioner, uh, New York Police Department commissioner um, made this point is that a lot of times police departments are hiring their problems. They're hiring bad, bad apples. I'm not saying the problem is only a matter of bad apples. It goes far beyond that. It's a matter of systemic incentives and so forth. But there is, in addition to that, a problem of hiring people who should not have been cops, who, who should not have passed the screen in, into being cops. Why do police departments have to do this? Because not that many people want to be cops. It's um, it's a dirty profession in some ways. It's like, it's uh, one of the 20 deadliest professions. Um, a cop gets shot almost every day in America. That's another thing that's not true in, I imagine it can't be true in Australia um, no. with your, after your gun reform. It's definitely not true in Europe. Um, but here in America, a cop gets shot almost every day. Um, in addition to that, there's a portion of the country that hates you because you're a cop. Um, most jobs like that, you, you know, people don't want to sign up to be hated. Um, the average salary is something like $50,000, $55,000, which is good, but not great. So we want a bigger applicant pool to begin with so that we can get the cream of the crop. You know, um, we want to be able to, in theory, bump up the salary for cops so that we can attract people who would have otherwise gone into a higher paying profession um, to become cops. That's part of the way that we're going to get to uh, more healthy relationships between police and civilians and higher quality police. How can we do that if we demonize the cops? If we make it the kind of, yeah, I, I imagine what is the typical black 12 year old in America uh, you know, who isn't going to go to college because it's not really for him. Um, how are his attitudes being shaped towards the possibility of becoming a cop right now? If you grow up in this era, you have to, you'd almost have to be crazy to want to become a cop. You'd have to have a, a really strange level of, you know, being able to shun the zeitgeist and to go against the crowd, um, which means that you know, there's going to be fewer black cops, maybe, maybe even fewer white cops. I don't know. And, and the ones, you know, in any way, it's just going to distort the applicant pool. I've, I worry that it is. I don't have necessarily strong evidence, but so this, it's, it's, it's something trust, to worry about. As trust and goodwill and uh, faith in our institutions breaks down right across the West, this is actually true of a lot of professions. Uh, I, I, for many years, was in public service as an elected member, but the disincentives Ironically, people sort of say, oh, they're only in it to line their own nests. They're all corrupt. They're all this. They're all that. And that just discourages good people, the very people you want from taking up the profession. It makes it a sort of self-fulfilling prophecy. They're no good. So they end up being no good. You don't solve the problem. You actually make it worse, which is what sort of worries me about the extraordinary emotion and heat that develops around things that are 
potentially real problems. Can we go back to uh, you know your data and you argue powerfully, uh, the evidence is strongly supportive of your position as I understand it, that um, blacks are not badly overrepresented in, in the prison numbers, for example, um, in terms of what they've done. They're not so much more likely to be arrested and incarcerated. It's more the fact that, as you yourself said, there are a lot of calls, particularly things like homicide, from black communities. It seems that you've got a lot of particularly young black Americans falling by the wayside, um, uh, black men, sorry, uh, and ending up incarceration. There are other factors than simply the colour of their skin. Can we tease those out a little bit? What other factors are, are creating the problem? We know that many black American are doing very, very well, but plainly there are many young men in particular because they're vastly overrepresented versus women in your jails. What's going wrong for them? Well, it's hard to know where to begin, but, you know, I I, I think you have to say it begins in the home. Um, you know, roughly two-thirds of, of black children are born uh, out of wedlock, the, the rate of single motherhood in the black community is much, much higher than in the white community and has been for, you know, going on 50 years, maybe 50, 60 years now. Um, more than just the reality of, you know, not having a father in the home is where you have whole neighborhoods where very, there are very few houses with fathers settling in the home. Um, I, I think, you know, frankly, if you grow up in a nice neighborhood and you're raised by a single mother, I'm not sure you're going to be ruined by that necessarily. If you're you're in a stable environment, um, you, you certainly might have feelings about not having your father in the home, but it's not like that's a, uh, you know, a pipeline to prison. But if you're in a neighborhood where there are, there are no, there are very few stable family units where like 90% of, of families are not a uh, you know married couple raising their children, right? This is this is true in many places in America, in, in, in certain black neighborhoods. It's it, you know it is very hard for the government to come in and fix that with public policy. Um, so much of stability and so much so much of the nourishment that can come from having multiple adults raising their own children in stable units where adults are not shifting around with partners and whatnot. You know, it, it's very hard to correct for that chaos, that social chaos when it exists. And when that is the norm, you get into, you can very easily get into a cycle of that kind of behavior. If you grow up and it's just normal to, to father kids out of wedlock, that's all you know. Um, if it's if it's if it's normal to commit crime and have a criminal lifestyle, and the you know the men you grew up idolizing were criminals, then again, that's all you know, and you you can fall in. It's just much easier to fall into it in that context, and it's very difficult to break a cycle like that once it's begun. Um, so. You know, all of those, all of that is to say uh, there are very difficult problems here. There's a reason we haven't figured out 
how to solve this problem easily for for 50 odd years is because it's hard. You can't it's really can't just Yeah, you can't just sort of change um, a cultural pattern that people have grown into, even if it's a result of past government policies in some sense. Even if you can trace all of all of it back to slavery, I'll just grant for the sake of argument that that's that one can do that. It's still difficult to fix a problem that has become a a cultural problem and that has become a cycle of poverty um, with with government programs. It's difficult and it's not confined to the black community. Although there's a big difference in degree, we've also seen this increasingly happening in um, rural white communities as well over the past 20, 30 years. It's common right across the Western world. Um, I think we've known for a very long time that boys in particular learn by imitating, by modeling, following modeling. And ideally and most efficiently and most effectively, that is, I think, in the presence of the biological father. Who, who teaches them how to treat others, how to treat their mother, how to treat um, the community uh, members around them with respect. If, if dad's not there, well, because boys look for a model, they'll find the bloke next door. And if he's not there, then they'll join a gang, which seems to be a particularly disastrous outcome. But here's, here's the point I'd make. I would have thought that one of the most effective things you could do if you wanted to lower the rate of... Um, incarceration uh, and uh, uh, terrible outcomes for African-American men, just as for white American men, you'd address this issue of the home environment that they grow up in. That would be more effective than protesting on the streets in the long term. But as you call them in your country, uh, the liberal establishment won't have a bar of it because you're not allowed to cast judgment uh, on on the sort of environment in which we raise our children. Anything goes in the name of civil liberties. And then when it turns into a disaster for people, will we riot on the streets? Mm. Yeah, I, the, the American left um, has a, a kind of, and you alluded to this earlier in the conversation, a position on agency that is fundamentally flawed, which is that... If a black person does something bad, he is not to blame, ever. It is always society. And to blame him makes you a racist. That's, that, that's the quintessential example of racism among American progressives. If a white person does something wrong, then it's very much valid to blame him. Now, what does that say? What does that actually say? I'm not dismissing that um, society has a collective responsibility to uh, remediate issues that, you know, wrongs that are done by individuals. Like, we, we do have a responsibility to use public policy to try to reduce crime and incarceration. Absolutely. That is completely true. Not denying that. What I'm saying is, if you can't ever take a stance towards another human being which blames him and him alone for his actions, then you actually don't view him 
as someone who is capable of changing his actions. The reason you appeal to blame in the first place is because you think it can get someone to act better. When your child does something wrong, you know that by shaming them, that is possible for them to change their behavior, to develop a better character. Um, they, they're, they're a person with reason that can be appealed to to act better or worse and to merit praise when they do the former and blame when they do the latter. Now, if you're saying nothing a black person does, if he ends up in prison because he murdered someone, that's all society's fault. It's not his fault at all. Or if he walks out on his, his children, then that means you don't view black people as a whole as a group of people that can be appealed to to do right or wrong. You are essentially infantilizing all black people in the name of anti-racism. It is, it's, it's, um, it would be funny if it weren't so sad because that is the, that's the essence of racism. The essence of racism is to say, you're not an agent that can be appealed to to improve your behavior. You're some lesser kind of thing. Um, but on the American left today, that's viewed as uh, what it means to be not racist. Can I ask, uh, you know, at a personal level, um, how does it feel for you uh, who, you know, you're very dedicated to reality. You, you see the problems. You don't deny the problems for a moment. But you see the importance of actually assembling a, a real understanding of what's happening uh, before you then try and launch into finding solutions. Uh, what's it feel like to um, to be part of a society that's less interested in reason, debate, and more interested in emotion? Does it put you in a difficult position? In practice, there are just whole swaths of media that uh, aren't that interested in, in rational conversations. Um, I feel often I'm playing a different game. I'm playing it. I'm playing a sport that has a different set of rules than some other people. Um, I'm playing uh, a, a game that has rules like you have to use facts and evidence and logic to, to back up your argument. Um, the fact that something, a fact comes out of white mouth or a black mouth, doesn't matter to its being true. That's the kind of, that's my general approach. I think I could defend that approach, that approach um, if I had to. Um, but other people have completely different approaches. They view the world purely in terms of groups of good and, good and evil people. Um, the evil people are often divided by their identity. And it's all a matter of wresting power for, from them. It's simply a matter of using rhetoric to wrest rest power from the good people and give it to the bad people. So if I'm, if I'm put into someone who has even a little bit of that software operating on their mind, conversation breaks down extremely quickly because we're, it's, again, it's just like they picked up the, the soccer ball or I guess what you'd probably call the football with their hands and just throw it into the goal. And I'm insisting that they, use their feet to kick it. Well, I salute you for your courage, for your calmness and for your reason. Progress is never made, particularly in a democracy, without those qualities. 
So all strength to your right arm and, and uh, I, I hope you feel you can keep carrying on uh, and that people everywhere will recognise you only get good public policy when you have a good debate and good debate ultimately depends on facts and reason. Could not agree more. Thank you so much for your time. You've been very generous and I really appreciate it. Absolutely. You've been listening to John Anderson Direct. For further content, visit johnanderson.net.au.